0: Heavenly Father, so thankful this morning to be able to come and worship you, Lord. We're so blessed and so honored uh, to live at a time when we can have so much uh, difficulty around us and yet such amazing ability to use technology to worship you, Lord, technology to uh, help heal and cure people that are sick, to care for one another, Lord, uh, just no other time in history like this. We're we're truly blessed and truly honored to be able to live during this time. And Lord, I would also uh, just be reminded that uh, we're not the only church on the internet this week, that there are churches from the city of Cheyenne uh, trying to sort this out just like the rest of us. There's churches all over the world gathering together online. Uh, Probably, Father, uh, these last few weeks have been the, the most Christian times ever on the internet, which is an amazing thing to see. Lord, this morning I would pray for my friend Daryl Smith over at Beacon Hill Baptist Church, Lord. I'm thankful for his ministry. I'm thankful for uh, the chance I get to pray with him on a weekly basis for our city, Lord. I would ask that you would be blessing him and his church this morning, that you would be uh, using them to proclaim the gospel both in their own building but also out in the world. Uh, Father, I would pray uh, that the people of his church would be growing in their faith because of his ministry that they would comprehend, Father, more and more just how much it is you love them. They would be conformed more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we also pray for the different missions that we support. I think this morning of Charlie Reed and his work with biblical concepts and counseling, I know that uh, for uh, us at the church here, uh, this has been a time of increased counseling, that uh, people are kind of nervous and anxious, but in addition to that, they're uh, somewhat uh, duck with their families and maybe difficult relationships. And so, Lord, this morning I would pray uh, that you would be able to use his ministry uh, to, to heal families and to heal marriages. And Lord, would you bless him with great uh, peace and great wisdom as he communicates with people. And Lord, would you protect him from being overwhelmed by a hearing from everyone else and their difficulties. Lord, I'm also thankful for our ministries here. Uh, these things look different now because of the way we're doing things. Uh, but this morning, I pray for Glinda and for the children's ministry. And Lord, uh, for the first time ever, she has all the volunteers she needs. So she has parents in their homes with their kids, uh, raising them up in the things of the Lord. She's been able to give them uh, the curriculum they need and be able to give them coloring sheets and different ways for them to connect uh, to the messages, Lord, but to parents are uh, being given the opportunity to uh, bless their children with the things they've learned as well. Lord, I pray that that would spark uh, in the families uh, a great joy of studying the Word together. I pray for Glinda that this will be uh, a time where she can refresh as well, uh, but then when uh, all things get back to normal, Lord, that all those who were able to teach their own kids at home uh, will recognize that they have the ability to teach kids here, and we'll see uh, extra volunteers in the children's ministry. Lord, I would pray this morning for our message. Uh, we're going to be in your word today, that you've given it to us for your purposes, that as much as uh, me, me wanting to draw something special out of these things, it's important, but more important is what is it that you wanted us to get from this? What is it you wanted us to see? So Lord, this morning, would you open up uh, Palm Sunday to us, Mark chapter 11, or the so-called triumphal entry of your son, Jesus Christ? Would you make it clear to us? Would you allow your Holy Spirit to... Uh, remind us and renew us in our hope and our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. Uh, If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to that, Mark chapter 11, or your iPad or iPhone, however you normally uh, are going to be taking in the word. And I'm just going to begin just by reading our passage. It's going to be Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 this morning. I'll read through that and then we'll go back and we'll talk about it here uh, very briefly. So in verse one, it says, As they, and this is Jesus and his disciples, uh, as well as many other people, but in this particular case, seemingly uh, Jesus and his disciples, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, You will find a colt tied there on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So this is what we call Palm Sunday, or some people call it the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Uh, But uh, what I'd like us to kind of do here uh, is just realize that we have this once a year time where we focus our attention uh, on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Easter season for us. Uh, It's really not intended... Uh, to be some sort of a self-help moment. It's actually just intended uh, to be a worshipful time where we can renew or remind ourselves of the great things that Jesus has done for us. And it often is kicked off here with this uh, scene in Scripture. It's in all four of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can find it in all of those different places. Uh, But what I kind of wanted to look at as we start this out is uh, I want to set the scene by helping us kind of understand what the people involved might have been feeling. Uh, I want you to think, first of all, about the disciples who were were traveling with Jesus. Uh, I, I can't imagine what they were thinking. All I can imagine is that they were nervous and scared. As Jesus is making this trip into Jerusalem for the final week of his life, uh, certainly they don't have all wisdom like he does. They don't know how it's all going to play out. All they know is what he's told them up to this point. If you were to look back uh, in chapter 10 here, uh, just a few verses back, looking back at verse 33, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus has just told his disciples, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. Uh, You add to this uh, another time that Jesus had told them the same concept that when they got to Jerusalem in the the gospel of John chapter 11, uh, he tells them the same thing that when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be put to death. Thomas, one of the disciples said, well, then let's go to Jerusalem with him. Let's all go die with Jesus. And so you can imagine when they think about what's about to happen as they prepare themselves to enter into Jerusalem, Jesus, having warned them on multiple occasions, when he gets there, He's going to die, but then even in their own hearts, they're boldly going with him, expecting that they would die with him, that they're ready to die with Jesus Christ. They're preparing their hearts for death. And so, as they prepare to move themselves into Jerusalem, the nervousness, the anxiety, uh, the, the, the fear that must be building up in them has got to be more of a fear than we're used to experiencing. Well, then, as they approach now these two cities, Bethphage, it says in verse 1, and Bethany, uh, near the Mount of Olives, he's going to send two of his disciples. Now, these uh, particular cities, uh, I've actually been through this area here uh, just this last year, actually just a short time before all this uh, coronavirus stuff kicked off. Um, But if if you were to see where these are, and I've put a map up there for you so you can see them, uh, but really, if you were to go from Bethany, which is the farthest out city, to the temple to work your way into the city of Jerusalem, uh, it's less than two miles. It's really not that far. You could uh, walk it, you know, maybe in 45 minutes or an hour or something like that, all the way from Bethany. And Beth Vaj is probably the city where he got the actual uh, donkey there, the Mount of Olives, this area here. So again, uh, it's just a couple of miles at the most. Uh, to get into the city. You can see Jerusalem from there. You're going to go through the valley, uh, the Kidron Valley there to get into Jerusalem. And you'll go up then into Jerusalem. And the way the city is situated, when you come in from that direction, you're actually entering directly into the temple as opposed to the city that's kind of around it there. Uh, But as they enter these cities, Bethphage and Bethany, uh, Bethany in particular might stick out in your mind. Bethany is going to be Jesus' base of operations for the final week of his life. You're going to see that a lot of things uh, have and will happen there. Uh, Just prior to this, Jesus had been in Bethany where he raised a guy by the name of Lazarus from the dead. So in the city of Bethany, Jesus is pretty popular. There's quite a few people that know Jesus and know the ministry that he's doing. Uh, In addition to that, you'll find uh, in just another day or so, Jesus is going to be anointed uh, at Simon the leper's house. Uh, in the city of Bethany. And then after Jesus dies and resurrects resurrects from the dead, we're told in Luke 24 that he's going to ascend from there as well up into heaven. And so we have all of these different things happening uh, in this particular area of Bethany. It's a pretty important city for those reasons. We have the Mount of Olives here, uh, all of this kind of overlooking Jerusalem. And so you can imagine this if you'd like, but uh, I've seen it. Now, when you come out of that temple there, there's going to be just this huge valley and on the other side of it are the cities. And so he's just going to be crossing that valley. Uh, But he does something interesting here. He's going to send his two disciples. And let me read it to you the way it says it in scripture. Uh, He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has yet ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Uh, You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. So now Jesus sends two of his disciples. We don't know uh, which two particular disciples it was, but two of his disciples have been sent on an errand to the, the city opposite them, which makes us think that they're going to the city of Bethphage now. Uh, but they go to this city for the purpose of getting a cult For Jesus to ride on. Now, this is an atypical thing. There's nothing else like this in the history of the ministry of Jesus where he asked them to go get him a a colt to ride on or any kind of animal to ride on. The assumption, uh, really, up to this point, is that he's been walking uh, wherever he goes, that he's been taking time, the actual time it takes to walk from city to city and location to location. Uh, Even so much so that one time, instead of riding a boat across the sea, he just walked across the sea. But this is just kind of a new thing. This is being brought to our attention. Uh, What's happening here uh, is that Jesus is intentionally connecting himself to a prophecy. And this is where I'd like to see it, not from the disciples' perspective, but now let's see this from Jesus' perspective, from God's perspective. Uh, How is he viewing these events? Well, the thing that Jesus has going on here uh, is, is a moment of obedience to his Father and of love for us. Jesus has known from the beginning, he has always known from eternity past that his life was going to intersect with this moment and that he would enter into Jerusalem for the purpose of dying on the cross to pay the price for our sins. This has always been his goal, his, his mission in life. It's always been something that he has intended to do. Uh, we know that God had this idea, this concept of, of a sacrifice for sin going all the way back to the book of Genesis. If you remember all the way back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they sinned the first sin, when they were deceived by Satan, but they sinned the first sin, they were naked and ashamed. And what did God do? He killed some animals so that they could take the skins of those animals and cover their nakedness, to cover their shame, to cover their sin. And then that has been repeated throughout history over and over and over again uh, to the point of now uh, within the nation of Israel, there's these required sacrifices for sins and most specifically at the time of Passover. And so now you're having throughout the nation of Israel, this idea year after year after year that they would have to bring a sacrifice for their sin. And so you think about every single year, hundreds of thousands to maybe even millions of sacrifices being brought the purpose of covering their sins, just like God did in the Garden of Eden. But each one of those sacrifices was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so from God's perspective, all throughout history, every time somebody sacrificed a lamb for their sins, it was a reminder to God, it was a reminder to Jesus Christ that Jesus would be that ultimate sacrifice. And so those year after year and those multiplied hundreds of thousands year after year sacrifices, each one rose up to God as a reminder and rose up to Jesus Christ in heaven as a reminder that Jesus would be giving his life. He had been preparing for this moment for all eternity. As you imagine that, then imagine the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he runs across John the Baptist And John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now within Jesus, we see this obedience and this love, this determination to go ahead and complete the sovereign plan of God that he's had from the beginning of time that prophetically has been laid out for them. Beyond the things that we see here in Scripture, there's the prophetic teaching of these things. Even this very moment that we're seeing right here in Zechariah chapter 9 is prophesied. This exact thing in Mark 11, prophesied for us in Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to turn there and read that for you as well. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. uh, It gives us a picture of what Jesus was trying to do. He was making an image so that the people would recognize this here. So look what it says here in Zechariah 9.9. It says, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem.'" Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so, Jesus is essentially, when he sends his disciples to pick up this colt, and this colt, C O L T, I have to say it like that, this C O L T, uh, in the other village, he's doing this so that he can reenact something that's been prophesied in advance. Uh, What isn't clear here in this moment, though, uh, is that the prophecy of Zechariah 9 actually goes right through this moment, and it goes to Revelation chapter 19, something we'll see in a couple of months. In Revelation chapter 19, it's really talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, Uh, but Jesus in this moment is identifying himself with the rider on the colt. He's making it clear to the people that he is, in fact, the king. He's the one who's supposed to be coming uh, to bring salvation. And it says that he is endowed with salvation. He's coming for the purpose of bringing salvation. So you have kind of this powerful prophetic retelling in advance of what's going to happen. In addition to that, I love the picture. It says he comes humble. And of course, it's very powerful to think about how humble this moment would have been. Uh, He comes humbly Because as he's going to come in this moment, he's riding on a colt of a donkey. And so now these guys have been sent to pick up this colt of a donkey so that Jesus can reenact this scene that's been given to us in prophecy that will ultimately be given to us at the end of time at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he tells his disciples, just when you get there, just say this, The Lord has need of it, and they'll actually give it to you. Now, uh, this is what takes it from Grand Theft Donkey to just obedience here, right? This is just Jesus himself explaining what needs to happen, uh, but apparently the had either been pre-set up with the owners of the donkey, and we actually see in, in the book of Luke uh, that the owners of the donkey are in agreement with this, that they give their permission. Uh, Luke chapter 19, says that some of the people that were there when they come to pick up the colt, uh, they were actually uh, the owners, and they give permission to this, or probably just as likely, if it wasn't prearranged by Jesus, uh, is this, that they were so willing to give what they had to the Lord that when asked, they gave freely. And I think that's probably more likely what's happening there. It's a good application point for us. It's just a moment for us to think through our life and just ask the very simple question, uh, At what expense are we willing to to surrender for the things of the Lord. If, if the Lord has need of us to do something, do we put limits on that and say, all right, God, I'm willing to do anything for you as long as it doesn't take more than 30 minutes. I'm willing to do anything for you as long as it doesn't cost me very much. Uh, it's just this idea of being willing to Uh, to share with the Lord the things that he needs. And he does need us. I think that's an important part of this that we sometimes forget, that the Lord does, in fact, need us. He's created this world in such a way that he's provided us with things that he's willing to use for his kingdom's building, his ministry here on earth. So those are one of the things that we don't want to forget in this. We need to check our hearts. Uh, For somebody to give up, uh, in this case, a cult. It would be similar to us giving up a car, a Dodge Colt, apparently. But in this case, just this willingness to be surrendering that much, to surrender a vehicle for the things of the Lord. Now, I don't think that God needs a vehicle right now, but I'm just saying if it's up to that level of giving that God says, I need this, that people would have a willingness to give. Not for any other reason, but the Lord needs it. They just want to give to the Lord. And that's what uh, we find here. Uh, with these folks uh, as they go that. So anyway, they they went away. They found the cult. The owners give permission for this. Uh, one of the things that we might want to connect to this, if you'd like to uh, do a little bit of extra research, uh, there's also this understanding that this time in history had been prophesied, uh, that it had been specifically laid out for this time in history. Uh, I was listening this morning to... Uh, Pastor Randy from Calvary South to his sermon, and he was using Daniel chapter 9 to establish that timeline to tell us that uh, we have a specific date in history that we should be starting a countdown until Messiah the Prince comes. And so if you want to listen to that, go to calvarysouth.org uh, and you can listen to Pastor Randy's sermon from this morning and he'll explain that to you, but I would do that after this sermon. You can hold off till then. Uh, anyway, uh, we continue on, so the bystanders give them permission Everything was just as Jesus said in verse 6. Then we get to verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And so, uh, what you're now seeing as Jesus rides this colt into town, it's going to spark a spontaneous worship service. Certainly within his disciples, as they see him, and likely they're making the connection to Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, But what may not be as obvious to you is that there's actually going to be a huge crowd of people at this time going into Jerusalem. This is the time of Passover. We see this in in the gospel of John. It tells us that there were many people because it was the time of the Passover feast. And the Passover feast was one of the pilgrimage feasts of the nation of Israel where all Jews who were able to travel were supposed to go to Jerusalem so they could all celebrate together before the temple, or as they would see it, so that they could celebrate together with God. So you have kind of this this amazing moment in time where as many Jews as were able were there at that time traveling as well to Jerusalem. And so you see them all kind of on the road, on their way to Jerusalem, Uh, the group of people that would have been there at that time, they see Jesus coming, who they've heard of because he resurrected Lazarus from the dead. We see that also in the Gospel of John. But they've heard of this Jesus. They've heard of his miracles. They've heard of the amazing things he's done. And now they see him on this colt riding into town. And it sparks their memory about Zechariah chapter 9. And they recognize that Jesus is declaring himself In this moment, the king of Israel. And so this is where it becomes the triumphal entry. Uh, from some people's perspective, they would see this as very similar uh, to the triumphal entry of a king of the Romans. The Roman kings, after they would have some great victory, they would have this kind of triumphal entry into their town, and they would have all of the things that they had stolen in battle, and they would have all of the people that they had captured, and they would come in riding on these amazing white horses, It's just this powerful moment. So some people kind of make that connection. Uh, of course, for Jesus, it's the exact opposite. He's coming in humility. He's riding on a, a tiny white horse, a tiny colt. So he's kind of humbled himself in this, that picture of him actually being a servant leader in these things. But the people see him, it sparks this memory, and it begins this somewhat spontaneous worship service, where they just begin to sing psalms. And the psalms were Already in their mind, as they enter into Jerusalem, there's this tradition that they would sing what are known as the Psalms of Ascent. And so if you were to go to Psalm 120 in your Bible, you would see, uh, at least in mine, it's titled A Psalm of Ascent. And then there's a number of Psalms after that, that they're Psalms of Ascent. And they're the Psalms that you would sing as you were entering into Jerusalem. So imagine that picture now. Uh, You have potentially a million or so people heading towards Jerusalem. All of them singing these songs as they enter into the city and then into the temple. Well, they change their song list when they see Jesus. They start singing out of Psalm 118 when they sing this line, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They sing this psalm to him. Uh, I think it's a powerful way to worship, to sing through scripture. I think it's something that uh, we do or at least I do often when I pray. I use scripture as kind of a guide for my prayer. Uh, but sometimes, and I've, I've learned this over the years, uh, if I want to memorize a scripture, it helps me to put it to song. And so I've done that over the years to try to help my my brain remember some scriptures. One of my favorite ones, uh, it was a really complex scripture. It's 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, and I was having trouble memorizing it. And some friends of ours, uh, Ray and Cindy Hallett, put it to music for us. And so now I can still remember it all these years later. Not that we are adequate in ourselves, to consider anything is coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God who made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills. But the Spirit brings life. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. That's the uh, show term version. I've also got a rap and a country version that I'd sing you another time. But the idea of putting those things To music, to take the word of God, and now they're singing the word of God at Him. Uh, It's something, by the way, that people will argue about a lot in worship. It's a a thing I hear all the time. Uh, This this came to my mind a number of years ago. I have a group of pastors that I interact with on a blog, and one of the blogs, uh, one of the pastors on the blog, was complaining about today's worship music. By golly, today's worship music's terrible. I miss the old hymns. The old hymns are so scriptural and so solid and strong in theology. And so I decided, being the wise guy that I am, I was going to check his facts. I was going to see if there was a reason to believe what he was saying. And so I went at that time and I looked for the top Christian songs. I took the top three Christian songs at that time uh, that were uh, popular for praise and worship. All of them were new songs. And I looked at them and I said, is this scriptural or not? And I could actually draw out very specific scriptures. And so I sent that back to him and I said, I think your issue is one of style, not of substance. I decided to do that today to Doug, by the way. He doesn't know this yet. Uh, but I did the same thing this morning. There's actually a website I found. It's called thebereantest.com. And this guy goes through songs that people will submit a song and say, hey, this is my favorite worship song. Will you check it out and see if it's doctrinal enough? Do you see if it matches scripture enough? Uh, by the way, the number one song in America right now for praise and worship is the song Waymaker. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the Berean test gives it an 8 out of 10. That's a pretty high score for scriptural. And he lists out 25 verses from the Bible that relate to that song. So how do today's worship songs uh, measure up? When we think about the songs that we sang just today, uh, three of them he's graded on his website. Uh, The first one we sang that was graded on his website, Raise a Hallelujah, 9.5 out of 10. Uh, That's essentially saying every word of this song is scripture and it's doctrinally accurate. Uh, The next one was Great Are You, Lord. That was a 9 out of 10. And then our our song for communion, Give Me Jesus, 10 out of 10. 100% scriptural. It's like the perfect worship song because there's so much scripture involved in these songs. They take line upon line, but the thoughts as well are examined. Uh, What I'm saying in this is when we sing we're creating a way to remember the word of God. And you see these songs that come out in your life that you memorize these songs accidentally, really. You sing them kind of over and over at church. You hear them on the radio over and over and they just kind of stick in your mind. And then I found myself in these moments and they're almost a little bit awkward, but I'll have this moment where I'm counseling somebody and the words that I want to give them are actually the words to a song. And I stop myself and I think, wait a second, is that even biblical? There's a pretty good chance it is. I think most worship leaders actually try to match up their songs with the scriptures. They try to make sure that they're doctrinally sound. It's a powerful thing that we can do in using scripture. I like to think of our worship on Sunday morning as setting the tone or the soundtrack for the rest of our life. So that when we're in our car and we're kind of struggling, I I do this all the time, I'll start singing a song. And this one we've been singing recently, this Raise a Hallelujah. I've, I've got about a third of the words memorized. And so I just keep singing those same parts over and over and over. And I'll just be driving along. I'll just be sitting in the living room. Uh, It's almost uh, probably annoying to the people around me sometimes, but it just hits my mind and it just allows me to kind of praise the Lord in a very specific way. There's just great power in finding worship songs that line up with Scripture. It's important for us to recognize that, but this is what happens here. In this moment, this spontaneous worship bursts out as Jesus has set up this this visual for them to see him as the king of, of Israel, the king of the Jews entering into Jerusalem. And they just naturally begin to sing Hosanna, which by the way means save now. So if you can imagine Jesus entering into Jerusalem, proclaiming himself the king of Israel and all the people around him shouting Hosanna or shouting save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now, and they even go in even further and they describe him in verse 10 Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They recognize what Jesus was doing here. This was a clear moment for them to see a picture of Jesus proclaiming himself to be the king of the coming kingdom of our father David, the prophesied kingdom, the promise that there would be one king who would for all time sit on the throne of the lineage of David, Jesus fulfilling all of that. Matthew chapter 21 gives us to this even a little bit more clear uh, when he proclaims him with a messianic title as the son of David. And so you see kind of how all of this is set at just the right time in history, at just the right moment, with just the right picture. Now imagine those nervous disciples who are like, wait a second, I thought we were going to Jerusalem to get killed. Everybody's singing our praises now. Everybody wants a piece of our Messiah now. Everybody loves him now. But we've forgotten about the religious leaders who hate Jesus. It was their plan to kill him. Uh, We've forgotten about the Romans who don't look kindly to other people declaring themselves to be king. And so as beautiful as this moment of worship may have been, I think in the disciples' minds, they might think to themselves... uh, could we keep it down a little bit, guys? We don't want to draw a crowd. <laughs> we don't want to make a scene as we enter town, but sure enough, they're making a scene. They're laying their coats down in front of him. They're taking palm branches and laying them down in front of him, waving him, a wave offering before him. Kind of this powerful moment, if you can envision this scene, uh, probably going on for a mile or more as he enters into Jerusalem. It's this powerful, powerful moment. And it should build in you this expectation. What's going to happen when he actually gets into the city? Well, uh, it's a little bit of a letdown. Uh, A little bit of a letdown. And this is why I don't really like calling this the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, because it really wasn't. It was a moment of powerful worship followed by no change. Now look what happens. It says Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around and everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. This amazing parade, this amazing entry, this amazing moment of worship as they enter into Jerusalem. And when he gets here, nothing. Uh, You'll find in the other scriptures, uh, some other passages that deal with this, some of the things that happen along the way. Uh, One of them, I think, that is most telling is it says, as Jesus was overlooking Jerusalem, he wept. Oh, how long I have wished to gather you in. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You see, the timing was not the time of the conquering king. First must be the time of the suffering servant. And so Jesus, just like a sacrificial lamb, he's going to spend the next week in Jerusalem and he's going to be examined for spot and blemish, just like the sacrificed lambs would be examined. And he's going to be found to be perfect and he's going to be sacrificed for all. It's amazing to me how quickly this turns from this amazing moment of worship to no actual change in the hearts of people. It's quite possible that a number of the people that were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, in a few days are going to be shouting, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It shows how quick a heart can change. It's uh, something that I think we can monitor in ourselves, that we can examine ourselves for. Do we have a faith that does this? We have these amazing moments of worship, and then we don't do anything different the next day, and so there's this let off. And then there's a new amazing moment of worship and it's this new high it's this new peak maybe we we had an amazing sunday morning or we went to a concert or something like that or we went to a conference it was just this amazing moment but then we go home and there's no change in our life we don't do anything different we don't actually take that amazing moment and turn it into an amazing worship that continues on, an amazing following of Jesus Christ, that we don't do anything better or more. We all want the amazing moment, but I think what God wants is to take those amazing moments to lead us into something amazing. They're intended to build us up and to spur us on to greater things. Let's not waste those those amazing moments of spontaneous worship, those moments where we get a glimpse of who Jesus Christ is. And I would say that to us this morning. As the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, save now, save now, in my heart I'm thinking, Hosanna, save now, save now. Jesus is on his way to be crucified to pay the price for your sins. How's that going to make you respond? If you're a believer, It should be an amazing moment of remembrance for you. It should be this awesome moment where you're renewed in your faith and it spurs you on to greater things. But if you're an unbeliever, this is the moment where God can save you now. It really is a simple thing. I go to this verse often, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, which means he's the boss, And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, which means he's a fulfiller of his promises. The same God who can resurrect Jesus to eternal life can also do what he's promised for those who believe in him, to resurrect us to eternal life. Then the last piece, you will be saved. Your sin has separated you from God and condemned you to an eternity in hell apart from God. It is a just act For a rejection of an eternal God, that we would be separated from Him for all eternity, that we would be matching the punishment to the crime. But it's not God's will for your life. He desires for you to be saved now. And you simply confess Jesus is Lord, and you believe God raised Him from the dead. It's really that simple. Again, we've got our phones going here, 635-2977. If you would like to pray with somebody, uh, there's some folks back there that would love to pray with you. They would love to share the gospel with you more clearly. If there's questions you have, they'd love to answer those the best they can. Uh, If you're not one that wants to talk on the phone, you can go to our website, about. And then in there, you'll find the emails for all the pastors. You can email us if you have specific questions. We'd love to take those questions and try to help you have a greater understanding of Jesus Christ uh, so that you may have salvation in him, eternal life. Now, next Sunday, we'll be celebrating Easter. And so... Uh, a number of years ago, I came up with kind of a reading schedule, a devotional reading schedule for each day of the week leading up to Easter so that we can uh, celebrate by preparing our hearts and seeing what the last life, uh, last week of the life of Jesus Christ looked like. Uh, we've updated it to look prettier this year. Uh, rather than just some typed up notes that I have. We have this nice little graphic that we had made for us. Uh, but you can get this on our website. Again, uh, if you're already live streaming this right now, if you just look at the screen above you, there's going to be a little button there that you can click that says walk with Jesus devotional or something along those lines. You click on that, it'll open up this PDF and a new tab, and then you can just print that off. And this can be kind of your guide this week to prepare your heart for next Sunday, where we celebrate not his death, but his resurrection. In addition to that, on Wednesday night, we'll be looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we'll be laying out the details of that. So you can kind of just follow along with us. We can do this, although we're separated, we can do this together, just apart, right? We'll spend the same time in the same scriptures. And so it's laid out. This is what happened with Jesus on Sunday. That's today, the triumphal entry. This is what Jesus did on Monday. He curses the fig tree cleanses the temple, and then on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, and on Wednesday night we'll look at his crucifixion, but on Thursday is when he's crucified, I believe. And then you'll find that there's no readings for Saturday and Sunday because after the death of Jesus Christ, there's silence. And then next Sunday when we gather together, we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to close us with a word of prayer, and uh, hopefully if you have been um, touched by the word today in some way, uh, that you would like to know Jesus Christ as Lord, this is your opportunity by calling the church. So let's go ahead and close with worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I want to pray for the people of our church. Lord, we've never done Easter in exile before. Lord, as a church, I pray that this time of absence and separation that we'll enjoy the technology we have, but absence will make the heart grow fonder. That it will drive up our desire to be together. So when we're finally allowed again to join back together, oh, Lord, it'll be a great celebration. Lord, I pray for the people in our church this week that you'd be speaking to them through your word, that your Holy Spirit would be reminding them to just do these simple readings. And you'd be preparing their hearts for a great celebration at home of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you and we love you and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.